If you'll take your copy of God's Word this evening, and we'll turn open to the Gospel of John. Tonight, we're going to look at John 10. And I really just want to focus on two verses, John 7 and John 9, but let's begin by reading John 10, verses 1 through 10. And let's pray before we open God's Word this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful that in the midst of darkness that You shine the light of Your Word. We pray that even this evening, that as we consider it, it would not just hit our ears, but we pray that it would find its way into our minds, that it would search our hearts, that it would stir our souls, that it would move our affections and our very wills for your glory. And we know that this can only happen as your Spirit attends to your Word, so we pray that that would be the case this evening. May you be exalted by us as we listen. May you minister to our very souls. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This is the holy inerrant word of God, John 10, verses 1 through 10. Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, that they, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Verse 7 and verse 9 are verses for tonight. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, it is a joy to be here at Harvest. Uh, I've heard about Harvest for a long time, uh, laboring here in Michigan for, uh, I don't know now, 10 or 12 years. So uh, this is my first time here, and I am thankful uh, to be here. As was said, I uh, labor at University Reformed Church in East Lansing, and uh, for that's been true for the past six years. So for the past six years, I've always been introduced as I was just introduced tonight. It's just changed a little bit. Uh, it's, this is Jason Halopoulos. He's at University Reformed Church where Kevin DeYoung pastors. Or now it's where Kevin DeYoung used to pastor. And uh, I fully embrace that. He is my dear friend. And uh, it is a blessing to be associated with him. Uh, I was taught that very early. Uh, I was uh, church planting for five or six years before that. And 
would preach week in and week out, and then I switched over to University Reformed Church and became the associate pastor where I wasn't preaching every week, and, and I would often drive uh, on Sunday morning. What I do is I take one of my children with me usually to go early with me because I meet with some of the elders to pray before the service, and I figure this is one of the benefits of being a pastor's kid. You get to sit in on prayer meetings like this, and so... On this particular morning, I had taken my daughter, she was seven at the time, and we were driving on our way to church, and usually what I do is I try and talk about what the service is going to be about, or what the word is that we're going to hear preached that morning, and we talk about it. And That morning, I was telling Grayson, who was sitting in the back seat, I said, Pastor DeYoung will not be preaching today, and all of a sudden, there were groans and there were moans from the back seat. And uh, I said, sweetie, what, what's wrong? And she said, well, I want Pastor DeYoung to be preaching. Now, to understand this story, you have to understand that in my house, my wife hates to cook. I love to cook. It is my hobby, and I do all the cooking in our house. And uh, we, we have a, a good shared relationship here. I like to eat it, and I like to cook it, so it works. Well, on this morning, we're driving to church, and I, I said to Grayson, I said, Grayson, I'm sorry, he's, he's on vacation this week, he's not going to be preaching. And then there were more moans and groans, things you should never hear from a seven-year-old's mouth in the back seat. And so I looked in the rearview mirror, and I said, sweetie, what is wrong? And she said, well, Pastor DeYoung is the best preacher in the whole world. I admit I was feeling a little insecure, and so I looked in the rearview mirror, and I said, sweetie, what about me? And she said, well, daddy, he's the best preacher in the whole world, but you're the best cooker. <laughs> so, so you get the cooker tonight. I want to preach uh, this sermon tonight to remind you and I of the most important thing. Uh, it is... Often easy in life, we get busy amidst all of the things that we are doing and the doing of things, and it's easy to miss the most important thing. So I want to remind us of that tonight and want to look at this proclamation of Christ where he says that he is the door. This is a little bit of a confusing passage. It's Confusing, I think, for multiple reasons, because you have Christ interweaving this idea that He is the Good Shepherd in this passage, along with the idea that He is the door. But it's also because He is communicating a couple of different concerns as He gives these different metaphors here of the door. And He, he merges references throughout this passage. If you look in verse 1, there in chapter 10, he, he says, Truly, truly, to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And then if you drop down to verse 7, you'll see that Christ says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And then in verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And and will go in and out and find pleasure, find pasture. The thief comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. As I said, there's a couple of different things that are going on here in this passage. In verses 1 through 4, Paul, uh, Jesus is giving them a warning. 
And he's giving this warning of what they are to look for and what they are to be concerned about. And so I want to look at that, first of all, this evening. And then we're going to see that Jesus makes an exclusive claim and then an expansive offer and finally an enduring promise. So first that warning, and then he makes an exclusive claim, and then he makes an expansive offer and finally an enduring promise. So first the warning. Jesus in verses 1 through 5 here, he's concerned about false shepherds. These false shepherds who Jesus says are thieves and they are robbers. What identifies someone, else, someone as a thief or as a robber or as a false shepherd? Well, Jesus says what marks someone as a false shepherd is that they do not enter by the sheepfold, by the gate or by the door. It could be interpreted either way. Now, to understand this, let's explain this a little bit and try and wrap our minds around the imagery here. Uh, if you were in the Middle East at that time or even today, sheep are abundant. They're everywhere. They are one of the most prized commodities in the Mediterranean world. It's not so in my world. I don't know about Grand Rapids, but it's not so in mine. I grew up in Illinois. We had a lot of cows. It was cows and corn and corn and cows. We didn't have sheep. And when I'm driving on my mornings on my way to Universal Reformed Church each morning, I will drive down the road and as I'm driving down the road, I go by Michigan State's farms and all of their fields, and, and I will cross this main street, and there is this large field that will be on my left, and it will be filled with cattle. There's cattle everywhere. But as I go a little farther down this road, there's all of a sudden this, this pasture of sheep. That's, that's very foreign to me. I don't remember seeing sheep growing up. But in the Mediterranean world, it would, just, it would be just the opposite. There would be tons of sheep and there would be very few cows. And so most in the Mediterranean world, as Jesus is giving this parable, would have understand very clearly what he was speaking of. Because sheep are a delicacy. They're a commodity. I, half of my family is Greek. Last name, Helopolis. They better be Greek. And... They love to eat sheep. They eat lamb all the time. I remember being a young boy and watching my grandfather eat the delicacy of the lamb, the lamb's head. I remember watching him pull out the temple and the eyeball and the sinuses. And he loved it. This is what he loves to eat, lamb. Of course, you have to take care of these sheep. Sheep are usually allowed to roam in pastures and feed upon that green grass, but every once in a while you need to collect these sheep together. And so you would collect them together in a sheepfold. And so what they would do is they would stack rocks in a, in a square kind of shape or a circle shape, and they would stack them really high so that the sheep couldn't jump out. And, and just to safeguard it a little more, they would usually put brambles on top with some thorns so that the sheep were even more discouraged about jumping out. And also to discourage thieves from trying to scale those rock walls to get in. There was always a breach that was left in that sheepfold, at least one spot where the rocks weren't piled up, and, and that was the door or the gate. And it was there that the shepherd would stand. The sheep within, and the shepherd would stand in that door or that gate, that break in the wall. 
And at night, when the sheep were safe within and they were resting, it would be the shepherd who would lie down in that breach in the rock formation, and he would serve as the gate or, or the door to that sheepfold. No sheep could go out, but no thief could get in. He was the door, or he was the gate. And Jesus is using this imagery. He is presenting it, a very common scene for Palestinian people. And Jesus says, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in in another way, is a thief and a robber. And we have to identify a couple of things here. What is Jesus talking about? Of course, the sheep, the sheep are the people of God. This is often used to speak about the people of God in the scriptures that we are the sheep or that we are the flock of God. This is common language. Second, who are these thieves or robbers? Well, to understand this, we have to look down at verse 7, where Jesus says, I am the door. That is, he is the gate or he is the door to this sheepfold. And he says, anyone who would seek to be a shepherd, who would dare to enter into this sheepfold in any other way but through this door, is no shepherd of the sheep. He's an imposter, he's a thief, he's a robber. Another way of saying this is that all those that would seek to shepherd the church must enter through Christ. This is a warning to the sheep of the church about their pastors, about their shepherds. The word pastor comes from the Latin word for shepherd. A pastor who does not know Christ, who has not entered through Christ, is no shepherd of the sheep. Rather, he is a thief and a robber, and we have seen this time and again throughout church history, and sadly in our own age. Unconverted pastors, those who have not entered the church through Christ, are wrecking balls in the church. They make it a mess. They destroy. They are thieves and robbers stealing the sheep. They harm and they hurt the people of God. And they tear down the church from the inside. Truly, unconverted pastors are one of the greatest abominations in the church. Maybe the worst blight that the church can ever have is unconverted pastors. Why? Because the blind cannot lead the blind, or they both fall into a ditch. When a man is seeking ordination in the PCA, that's the world I'm in, your OPC is very similar, even more rigorous, probably. When a man is being ordained in the PCA, he has to first graduate with a three- or four-year seminary degree. Uh, he has to suffer through those Bill Van Dudeward and Greg Salazar classes and graduate. And then after he does, that's not enough. He has to receive a call from a church, and, and that church... And that presbytery have to issue a call to him. And when they issue a call to him, he then has to take written exams for the presbytery that he's going to. It's not enough that he just has the degree. They want to know that he actually knows the information. And so he takes written exams. He has to take a written exam in English Bible and in theology and in Presbyterian history and PCA history and church history. And then he has to take an exam in sacraments and an exam in the, the PCA's book of church order. And he takes those written exams. 
He also has to show that he is competent in Greek and Hebrew and give them exegetical papers so that they can see that he knows the original languages. And after he's taken those written exams and a committee has looked over those written exams, that's still not enough. They then call this man in to sit down with this committee. And this committee of eight or nine or ten teaching elders and ruling elders will sit with this man and they will now examine him orally. It's not enough he can just write the answers. Can he speak them? Does he know them? And so they'll examine him in all six areas again. English Bible, theology, church history, PCA history, sacraments, book of church order. And after he passes those exams, it's still not enough. Because after he's passed through the committee, then he is to stand before the entire presbytery. And in my presbytery, that is all of northern Indiana and all of Michigan. And he must stand before all of the teaching elders and all the ruling elders that come to that presbytery meeting. And he is to preach a sermon before them. And then he is to be asked sample questions from those six areas. And then the people that are sitting out there, those teaching elders and those ruling elders, they can ask any question they want about those six areas. And he has to show that he knows it. But do you know how it all begins? It all begins with a man standing up and giving his testimony. Before all of those things, want to hear how the Lord Jesus called this man to himself and gave him the gift of faith and that he entered into the church by grace through faith. That's how it all begins. Does he know the good shepherd? Because if he does not, then he will not be a very good under-shepherd. It does not matter what he knows if he does not know the one who matters. A good pastor is but an under-shepherd who knows and loves and follows the good shepherd. If we continued in this passage, we would see that Jesus declares that he himself is the good shepherd. And part of the reason this text is confusing is that Jesus mixes metaphors here. He speaks of himself entering in the right way, meaning that he is legitimate as a pastor, that he has authority, he is the good shepherd himself who enters through the door, but he also says that he is the door. Seems a little confusing. Therefore, if any man would seek to shepherd your soul, he must know the shepherd of his own soul, Jesus is saying. He had to enter through that door. A pastor who is not being pastored by Christ cannot pastor Christ's people. I can remind you never just to trust a man because he has the title pastor. Never just trust a man because he has preached hundreds of sermons or thousands of sermons. Never just trust a man because he's even written books. Oh, you want a pastor, you want a shepherd who knows the good shepherd. He can be no shepherd who knows not the true shepherd. A pastor must be able to say with Paul in Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He must be able to say with John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. 
You want to know whether a pastor is worth following, then you ask yourself not how funny he is, not how charismatic he is, not how authentic he is, whatever that means. But does he point you to the Good Shepherd? Does he continually point you to Christ? Is Christ continually upon his lips? Does he love Christ and treasure him above all? If not, what good is he to you? If he attempts to come to the sheep in any other way, over any other wall, through any other means, besides the door, you will know it because Christ proves to be very little to him. But if he's entered through the door, then the name of Christ will be on his lips and will be on his sermons because he is in his heart. And he'll dominate him and dominate his ministry. And that's what you need. It's Christ. And how nice he is, no matter how charismatic he is, no matter how funny he is. He's not serving you well if he's not pointing you to Christ. And I know you have good ones here. Why is this so key? Why is it so important that under shepherds, that's what pastors are, simply under shepherds of the flock of Christ, Why is it that they enter in through Christ, that they know Christ, and that they preach Christ because of Jesus' exclusive claim? And that's our second point. He says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Again, he mixes metaphors here. Jesus is the good shepherd who enters through the door, and yet he also says that he is the door. But this isn't as uncommon as you and I might think. For example, Jesus says that He is the bread of life, and yet He also says that He gives us the bread. He says that He is the light of the world, and yet He also gives us light. He says in John 14 that He is the life, and yet we also know that He gives life in John 6. He says that He is the truth in John 14, and yet He says in John 8 that He gives truth. Jesus is the good shepherd, and yet he is also the door. He goes through the door that he himself is. Now, this is important to understand. Why would he say that he is a shepherd that goes through the door, and also that he is the door? Why would he blend these pictures? Because he is, as one commentator wonderfully said, Jesus is the true incarnation of every spiritual blessing he wants to give us. There are blessings inside the sheepfold. You enter through the door to receive those blessings. But those blessings are tied to Christ Himself. They're not apart from Him. You don't receive the blessings of Christ as some kind of standalone apart from Christ. They're wrapped up in Him. They are Him. He is the blessing. And so you enter through Him. And you receive Him. These blessings that can't be separated for Him. So for example, Jesus gives us peace. And yet Paul says in Ephesians, for He Himself, meaning Christ, is our peace. He gives us love, and yet we are told He is love. Wrapped up in Jesus as every spiritual blessing. And you have none apart from Him. None. It was... uh, about six months or so ago, 
I was uh, emailing back and forth with a friend of mine from, from my days growing up. He was in Boy Scouts with me. And he also attended the same mainline church with me growing up. And we were on Facebook, and I thought, well, this is an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And so I entered into a dialogue with him on Facebook and, and messaging back and forth. And I was sharing the gospel with him. And he said to me, he said, Jason, I'm a very spiritual person. I said, really? Tell me more about that. And he said, well, I, I practice the art of meditation. I said, really? He said, yes. He said, I have found there to be great peace in it. He said, actually, it's something that our youth pastor taught us when, when we were at that church together. He attended the youth group a lot more than I did and was around this youth pastor a lot more than I was. And he said, I found that it's identical. What he taught us is identical to Zen Buddhism. Talk about a false shepherd. If it's true that this is what this youth pastor was teaching, that we are to somehow meditate in a way that we empty our minds of all thought. And then he is a false shepherd. He is a thief and a robber. There is meditation in the Christian life, but it's meditating upon the Word of God, meditating upon Christ. But my friend said, he said, I, I found great peace in, in doing meditation. And I said to him, I, I'm sure you do. I'm sure that there is some measure of peace in that because I see so many people emptying their minds around me. It must be true. But he confessed as we went on that, that it wasn't lasting. He said, you know, it doesn't last, though. It's fleeting. He said, because some other thought will eventually enter in, and then the peace that I had will, will all of a sudden dissipate, and it will disappear. I told him that's right, because only in Christ is there lasting peace. You can't have these spiritual benefits apart from Christ. A friend of mine, uh, about three months after we were emailing back and forth, he was diagnosed with cancer, skin cancer, 45 years old, and within three weeks he died. Three weeks. He didn't know lasting peace. Because he didn't know Christ. It's exclusive. Jesus makes an exclusive claim here. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I asked us to read Exodus 3 tonight because that's in the background here to understand what Christ is teaching this is one of these I am statements of Jesus, and, and the exclusive claim that he is making here becomes all the more real as you understand that Exodus 3 passage. You'll remember from it just being read that Moses is there, he is out tending literal real sheep, and God calls him on Mount Horeb, and, and Moses goes up, he sees this burning bush, this bush that is that is being burnt but not consumed, and so he approaches this bush, and as he does so, he hears this voice. And it is God who tells him that he is on holy ground and that he needs to remove his shoes. And so Moses removes his shoes, and, 
And God says to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then he informs Moses that he's going to send him down to Egypt to redeem his people out of slavery. And he's going to use Moses as his great deliverer of God's people. And Moses is very anxious about this idea. This doesn't sound like a great idea. I'm not the man for this. God says, no, Moses, you're going to go down and you're going to redeem my people from Egypt. And what Moses is especially concerned about is what if the people ask me, who is it that sent you? Who is this God? And so God responds to him. And as we read, he just says, I am who I am. He doesn't mention a name like Ra or Jupiter or Allah or Zeus. Because he doesn't need to. Because there is no other like him. He says, I am who I am. That is, I exist. I've always existed. I exist and always will exist. I am. There's none like me. It's exclusive. Moses will go down and redeem the the nation of Israel out of Egypt and he'll lead them in the wilderness there and then they'll come there to Mount Sinai. And what does God do after he reminds them that you are my people? I redeemed you out of the hand of Pharaoh. Then he gives them the commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It's exclusive. I am who I am. And here is Jesus saying, I am. He takes this exclusive claim to himself. All this is going around in the background. He says in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. And then he says in other passages, the bread of life, I am. The light of the world, I am. The door, I am. The Jews understand this. In John 8, they pick up stones and they're ready to stone him to death. That's God's exclusive claim. It's Christ's exclusive claim. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. The door, I am. Friends, who can save but God alone? And Jesus claims this. You want salvation? You want eternal blessing? It only comes through me. Maybe you've heard that a thousand times. It doesn't really strike you anymore. It should. If it doesn't, you're treating something that is very uncommon, very common. Something that is extraordinary as a matter of simplicity. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. That should either offend you this evening or it should rattle your soul with delight. One or the other. There's no in between. It's an exclusive claim. There's no other way in There's no other way to enjoy these eternal blessings but through me, he is claiming. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. There's not two ways to be saved. There's not two doors to enter. If this isn't the door you're knocking upon, then you're knocking upon the wrong door. If this isn't the door that you're pointing your children to and your neighbors to and your co-workers to, then you're pointing them to the wrong door. 
It's this door alone. Salvation only comes as we come to Christ. It's an exclusive claim. But it's also an expansive offer. That's our third point. Jesus says, if anyone. If anyone. How wonderful are those words? If anyone. If anyone comes through Jesus, believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, he says they will find salvation. Not may, not might, not should, but will. Will find salvation. It doesn't matter whether you are black or white or yellow. It doesn't matter whether you're old or young. It doesn't matter whether you're 70 or 7. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're educated or uneducated. If you come to Jesus, you will be saved. Wonderful news. But you must go through. It's an expansive offer, but it means nothing to you if you don't cross over the threshold. If you don't go through the door. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a wonderful little illustration or phrase. He said it reminds him of going through a turnstile. At a, at a coliseum or a, a football field. This past year, uh, 2016, I asked for one thing for my birthday. Uh, I am not a prophet and don't claim to be one, but I knew. I knew that it was the year for my Chicago Cubs. After 108 years of futility, I knew. And so for my birthday, I asked for one thing, that we would get tickets to go see a Chicago Cubs baseball game at Wrigley Field so I could see them the year that they finally won the World Series. And so my family obliged, and they got me tickets to go see a Chicago Cubs game. So my wife and my son and my daughter, we headed off to Chicago. Now, when you go to Chicago... You probably know this as good Grand Rapiders that, that you, when you go to Chicago, you have to go for Chicago-style pizzas. Not enough just to go to Wrigley Field. So we, we went to go have our deep-dish pizza, but the problem was is that after we had our deep-dish pizza, we were a little late for the game. The national anthem had already been sung, and the game had already started. And so when we appeared outside Wrigley Field, there was just this sea of humanity. And so I had my... My 11-year-old daughter at the time, by one hand, and with her other hand, her mother had that hand, and then with her other hand, my, my wife had our son Ethan, our 7-year-old, by hand, and with my free hand, I was separating the sea of people in front of us. And we were making our way to the front of Wrigley Field, the sea of humanity. And when we got near the front there, there was a bottleneck, a, a log jam, because everyone had to go through these turnstiles and through these metal detectors to get in. And every person had to go in one by one. You couldn't take anything with you. You couldn't carry anybody through. You couldn't pull anybody through or push anybody through. Each person had to go through one by one. And when you get in Wrigley Field, it is one of my favorite things in all of life. Uh, when you walk up that concourse and you weave your way in and then all of a sudden you, 
you emerge out of the concourse and you enter into the stadium, into the field. And it's there. It's, the grass is green. There's ivy on the walls. The flags are blowing in the wind. And there's just this sea of humanity in there. More people than you can possibly count, it feels like. And yet they all entered one by one. Every single one of them. And so it is with the kingdom of God. We enter one by one. Have you crossed the threshold? Have you entered in? No one can do it for you. Every person must believe for themselves because every person dies by themselves, one theologian said. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Anyone. Think about that day when we will be in heaven in glory. And I think we will look around and we will see all of these people you know, we've, we've been taught it over the years, and we've sung about it, that there will be those from every tongue, tribe, and nation that are gathered there, but I think we will be amazed. We'll just be amazed when we see people from every generation of humanity, when we see people young and old, when we see women and men and children, when we see people of every creed and every color and every ethnicity and every nationality, every tongue, tribe, and nation before that throne, the most heterogeneous group in the entire universe. And yet, it will also be the most homogeneous group in the entire universe. Because they all entered the same way. By faith in Christ, trusting in Christ, are united to Christ, sharing the blessings of Christ because they are in Christ. They went across the threshold. They entered through the door. Every single one of them. Lastly, Jesus gives an enduring promise. What is so great about this salvation? What are the benefits that are found within Uh, We could camp out here tonight and go through all of those. But this passage, it focuses on two that I want to point out. The sheepfold. In the sheepfold, we receive protection and we receive provision. Protection. This is that there is safety inside the sheepfold. Not without. It's the door itself that protects the sheep from the darkness without. You say, but I don't know of that many dangers that are without. Oh, they are great. Satan and demons and hell and death and eternal damnation, they are all out there. And they devour. But within, within there is protection. Within there is safety. You are sealed off from all that is without. But you're only as safe That promise is only yours as much as those doors are secure. You're only as safe as those doors are secure. Lee and I, when we, a number of years ago, when we first moved into our house uh, there in Lansing, 
uh, we had a back door that was not exactly secure. And we found out the hard way when Sunday afternoon I was getting in my pastor's Lord's Day afternoon nap and Leah with me and all of a sudden there was a doorbell. So I got up out of bed and I went to the front door and I looked out the, the window that is by our door and it was our neighbor standing on our front porch. So I opened up the door and, and it was not only my neighbor that was standing on our front door porch, but it was also in her hand was at, our t- at the time our three-year-old daughter's hand. And she was looking at me with big bug eyes. And my neighbor explained that my daughter had come over there. My daughter, at three years old, was supposed to be sleeping upstairs. But she had managed to walk not only down our upstairs, she had walked through our living room, through our kitchen, to our back door, which isn't very secure, opened it, went out onto our back patio, went down those stairs, went about, I don't know, 40 yards across our backyard to a chain-link fence. She climbed over the chain-link fence, went into our neighbor's yard, who has a pool. And my daughter at that time loved swimming suits. It didn't matter what we put her in, she would change out of it and put on a swimming suit. But thank God she didn't jump in the pool. Instead, she walked up their back stairs, went to their back door, opened it, we have problems with back doors in our neighborhood, and walked into their house and announced herself. So here she was. Pool. Dangers are out there, for goodness sakes. Christ, the door of the kingdom of God, is secure for all of eternity. There's eternal protection within. Nothing can harm those that are inside ever. Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Could you name anything else, Paul? Protected. Secured. Forever. It's not just protection that Jesus promises, but also provision that he points out is found in the sheepfold. He says in verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He says in verse 9 that they will go in and go out and find pasture. This is a Hebrew way of saying that he will provide for us every single day of our lives. And it's not mere penance. It's not just little piddlings of things. He doesn't just provide enough, but He will provide abundantly. It's not just that you and I will have eternal life. It's not merely about time, but the best possible life that you and I could imagine with all the blessings that are attached to Christ and that are found in Him are ours forever. He will make us to lie down in green pastures. He will restore our souls. Our cups will overflow. Provision forever. This is a door worth entering. This is a door worth pointing others to enter through. For inside are blessings forevermore. And outside there are none. Once you know that you have crossed that threshold, oh, make sure you know that you have crossed that threshold. 
And those blessings are yours. But once you're sure of that, then you keep leading people, other people up to that threshold and put them in the way of that door as much as you can. And you tell them of all the glories that are within. There's a door worth entering. Let's pray together. Lord and our God, we are thankful that you are a God of salvation. We're thankful that you do not lead, leave us to ourselves. That you sent your Son into this world to redeem fallen sinners such as us, sheep that have gone astray, each who have turned to their own way. And we are thankful for this good shepherd, this lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth, this door, this gate into the sheepfold. And oh, Father, we would pray even tonight if there are any in this room, and surely there are in a room of this side, there are any that have not entered in, that you give them the gift of faith, that you turn them to Christ. May you take those hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. Would you pour out your spirit upon them? May they find that even this evening they are clinging to Christ as the good shepherd. That they can say, I entered in through that door, through that gate, and I have made Christ my own, even as he has made me his own. And may they know all the blessings that flow from our Lord and our Savior. And for those of us that are in Christ, we pray, O oh Father, that you would help us not to miss the most important thing in our conversations with others. Conversations with our children and with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our family members that we would keep leading others to this threshold. And that we would encourage them. That within our blessings forevermore, oh, do not forsake it. Make us evangelists for your glory. And may we be a people who cling to Christ. And find that he is our all in all. It's in his holy, sovereign, good, wonderful, lovely name that we pray. Amen.